0: This is The Upshot. I'm Leah Rose, and today I'm talking to Dashka Slater, who wrote The Fire on the 57 Bus in Oakland for The New York Times Magazine. Sasha was
1: asleep. The friend passed Richard a lighter, and Richard lit the skirt on fire. The skirt exploded into flame, and it went from zero to 60 in the space of about two seconds. And so Sasha ended up wearing this ball of fire. Dashka's story is about Sasha Fleischmann,
0: an agender teenager who was set on fire while riding a public bus home from school in November of 2013. Sasha was born Luke Fleischmann, but as a teenager began to question his sexual orientation and gender. Not feeling necessarily male or female, he decided to take on a gender neutral name, Sasha. He now identifies as agender, which can be tricky for a culture that relies on gender-specific pronouns like he or she. So just a heads up, I will be referring to Sasha as they, which Sasha prefers. In her story, Dashka also profiles Richard Thomas, the boy who set Sasha on fire. The result is a well-rounded portrait of a young man who, like Sasha, was forever changed after that day. Here's my conversation with Dashka. So who is Sasha Fleischman, and how did you hear about their story?
1: Sasha Fleischman is an 18-year-old agender teenager. Agender means that they, which is their preferred pronoun, they don't identify as either male or female. And so they consider themselves agender or sometimes genderqueer is the term that they use. Sasha lives in my neighborhood and was traveling home from high school when they were 18 and fell asleep on the bus and their skirt was set on fire. I heard about this because it was in my neighborhood. It happened actually just a few blocks from where I live. And Instantly, it was out on the neighborhood listservs. Everybody was talking about it. It was this absolutely horrifying incident. Uh, on Our first impression, anyway, was that it was some sort of hate crime and uh, a fairly horrific thing to happen to a teenager coming home from school.
0: What were some of the big questions that you had going into this story? And what were the most interesting parts of the story to you?
1: I would say there were two driving questions for me. One was, who is Sasha? And what does it mean to be agender? It was my first encounter with the term and with the concept. And so I was very curious about how an 18-year-old person comes to this understanding of themselves. Sasha actually became, uh, came out as agender gender at age 16. So, you know, that's very young to have such a a nuanced understanding of your own identity. And Sasha's understanding is very nuanced. Sasha's a very uh, extraordinarily bright and articulate kid. And they really had thought much more deeply than I think most people do about gender and sexuality. And so I was very interested in that whole part of it and understanding what it meant. What was it that sparked uh, their question about gender? Sasha was, uh, and still is as far as I know, a fan of a webcomic called Poly in Pictures that deals with polyamory and gender and sexuality. And there was a lot of discussion of genderqueer and agender issues on this webcomic and on other websites that Sasha frequented. And so Sasha just began to ask this question of themselves, uh, am I a guy? And how do you know? And so started asking everyone that they knew, including their parents and their friends, how do you know what gender you are? And when people replied, well, I just know, Sasha felt like that was not their own experience. Um, Sasha said to me, I didn't just know. And so began to question, am I a guy?
0: It's just a little bit misleading because when you refer to Sasha as they, it almost seems like they're taking on both of the genders, male and female. Does that seem to be what, what Sasha wants?
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, it's a... It's an interesting question, you know, are you without gender or are you with both genders? And I think what Sasha is very attracted to, both personally and intellectually, is the gray space, is, you know, trying to figure out what does that mean, to be both, to be neither. Are they the same thing or those different things? So can you tell us exactly what happened on the bus that day? So what happened on the bus that day was that Richard Thomas, who was a 16-year-old African-American kid from uh, East Oakland who attended Oakland High School, which is the high school very close to where Sasha and I both live, um, was traveling home from school with two friends, actually a cousin and a friend of the cousins that they ran into on the bus. And what looks like happened is that the friend of uh, Richard's cousin suggested that Richard light Sasha's skirt on fire as a prank. Um, Sasha was asleep. The friend passed Richard a lighter, and Richard lit the skirt on fire. The skirt didn't catch the first couple times, and when it did catch, it exploded into flame. I mean, it went from zero to 60 in the space of about two seconds. Wow. And so Sasha ended up wearing this ball of fire and uh, woke up, got up and ran, um, And which of course is the worst thing to do when you are on fire. Yeah. And two bystanders tackled Sasha and smothered the, the flames with their coats and bodies. And, and this is all still on the bus? This is still on the bus. And it happened really within just a few seconds. You know, it was a lot of activity and a lot of damage in a very short amount of time. Sasha ended up with uh, second and third degree burns that ran um, from the calf to the thigh. Wow. On both legs.
0: And so did you actually see this happen on the the video that was on the bus?
1: Yeah. the um, All AC Transit buses have... A system of cameras, and so the surveillance video caught the incident from multiple angles. So I was able to watch the incident unfold.
0: So, did the boys take off, or what happened after the the fire was put out?
1: Uh, The boys had already. Richard had already jumped off the bus. Um, Richard uh, lit the skirt and then jumped off right away. Um, The idea being that the skirt was going to go out quickly, and Richard would be long gone before. Uh, anything happened yeah Uh, the other two boys did not jump off Um, I think they were completely taken by surprise by what happened and uh, they eventually everybody got off the bus because the bus stopped and the driver got out and uh, the police came and the ambulance and so forth
0: what did you make of Richard's testimony to the Oakland PD officers after he was arrested for setting Sasha on fire and what
1: did he what did he tell them about why he did it? Richard started out by saying that he was just a bystander, and it was only after he was shown the fact that they had a video recording of the event that he admitted that he had been the one who had set the fire. Um, and it was an interesting exchange. Because the police obviously had a theory of the case and they had asked him in the course of this of the questioning. Now, remember, this is a 16 year old kid who uh, has been in a room by himself for three hours almost and then has no attorney, no parent there. So they had had kind of a wide ranging conversation as the police had tried to get to know him and to establish a relationship, which is what police officers do when they're
0: interrogating. In, yes, yeah. interrogating
1: a suspect. So they had asked him about his views on uh, homosexuality and had he ever had a bad experience and you know a lot of different things. Um, so it's it's always difficult when you're reading these kinds of or watching these kinds of police interviews to understand, where ideas come from. So what Richard said to them was that it was he he I don't know if he used the word prank, but he said, I didn't know it was going to go up like this, right. But he had already said to them that he uh, didn't have any problem with gays or homosexuals, but that he himself was very homophobic was the word he used. And that was the word that would appear in the charging documents.
0: So that's confusing. He says he doesn't have a problem with gays, but he's homophobic. So when you say it's hard to say or to tell where ideas come from, do you mean maybe he was influenced by the officers who were questioning him or he was trying to cover something
1: up? I, you know, my job is not to, uh, you know, I'm not here to, to say, what was inside Richard's mind, because I don't know that. I can only know what I learn from interviews, what I see myself. So, you know, I, I haven't interviewed Richard, and I don't know what explanation he would give for why he said I'm homophobic, but I certainly heard a lot of theories from other people. Um, one theory was that he didn't know what the word meant and that he was trying to say that he was heterosexual. Um, I heard also that maybe he was trying to say what the police wanted him to say, that they seemed to be asking him about being prejudiced against gay people, and so he was trying to kind of please them. Um, That I heard that maybe he was trying to excuse what he had done Maybe he was trying to take full responsibility for what he'd done and not implicate the other two kids who were with him. It's hard to know.
0: You did a really great job of presenting a very well-rounded profile of Richard. Was it hard not to vilify him?
1: No, it wasn't. In my other life, I'm a children's book writer and um, so I have, you know, I wear two hats most of the time as a writer, both I'm writing as a journalist and writing for children. And I think if you write for children, you have this inherent belief in childhood and in children and the fact that they are not the same as adults. They don't think the same way as adults, and they should not be expected to behave like adults. And so I really saw Richard as a child And what was interesting to me was to try and figure out who he was and what in his life had brought him to that moment. But I was not inclined to see him as, you know, a a villainous figure. And there was a question when he
0: was first charged with two felonies for the incident that he was possibly going to be charged as an adult and he faced a possible lifetime sentence And there were some people that you interviewed, including Sasha's parents, who felt that he should be tried as a juvenile. Can you talk about the difference in in sentencing?
1: Yeah, Richard was charged as an adult, and he did face the possible sentence of life in prison. In California, uh, voters passed in the year 2000, voters passed an initiative called Prop 21, which gave district attorneys the power to do what's called direct filing. Previous to that, a juvenile who prosecutors wanted to charge as an adult would go before a judge and there would be a hearing to determine whether that offender should be charged as an adult or as a juvenile. Prop 21 took away that hearing and allowed for prosecutors to make the decision on their own. Um, The... Danger with that is that prosecutors are making the decisions very, very early before the case has actually been investigated. So they're usually basing that decision on really purely on a police report, and so the jeopardy that young people face in this situation is fairly extreme. Now, it in California, some studies that have looked at what the impact has been, we're not seeing a huge jump in the number of kids who are serving time in adult prison, but they are facing very long sentences and they are facing the possibility of serving their time among adults.
0: So he was sentenced in the end to seven years and he's, he's in a, an adult prison now.
1: No, he's, he's still in the juvenile system. Um, he has a couple of hoops to jump through. There are two hearings that he needs to have in order to determine whether his sentence will be reduced. He has had the first of those hearings and came through with flying colors. If he meets the benchmarks for the second hearing, his sentence will be reduced to five years. That will enable him to serve all of his time in juvenile facilities and not have to go to adult prison. Okay. And
0: if you weren't given access to him, um, how did you manage to profile him?
1: I did a lot of interviews. Um, I was very lucky in a number of regards in this story. Uh, The biggest one was that I had the cooperation of both families. And so I interviewed everyone I could find who knew Richard from uh, his... A truancy officer at school who had become very close to him, his friends, his cousin, uh, his mother, his bosses um, at his summer job, really everyone I could possibly locate. And fortunately, the picture that emerged from those interviews was quite consistent. Um, everything that I wrote about him, I got from, from more than one source because I wasn't able to interview him directly. And so I I kind of, I did double checking for everything that I did. Yeah.
0: And were you not able to interview him because he's a, a minor?
1: I was not able to interview him because he was facing such an enormous sentence that his attorney felt that it would place him in too much jeopardy. Do you know if he's read the story? He has. Do you know what he thought of it? That I would have to, I'm not going to uh, it would be hearsay so yeah okay
0: um, you quoted some lines from two different letters that Richard wrote to Sasha can you can you tell us about those letters and what you made of them
1: Richard wrote two letters to Sasha just within a couple days of his arrest and they're very moving letters um, in the first one he didn't know the name of of the person whose skirt he'd set on fire. And so it's just addressed to dear victim. And in the second one, he then had Sasha's name, and it's a three-page letter in which he really kind of pours his heart out, um, both saying, I'm so terribly sorry for what I've done, and I deserve to be punished, and I just want you to be okay. And also talking about himself and saying, you know, I know what it's like to have um, somebody do something mean to you and the feelings that you must have. And so it's really, I felt that it was an attempt to kind of reach across time and space and make connection with somebody uh, that he had wronged. And do you know what Sasha's reaction to the letters
0: were? Did you talk to them about it?
1: Sasha didn't receive the letters until the whole process was over. Um, The letters went immediately into the briefcase of Richard's attorney, and because they contained admissions of guilt, they could not be shared with anyone until after the case had already been adjudicated.
0: Wow. That's kind of unfortunate because you would think Sasha would want to really read those.
1: Yeah, it was unfortunate in many ways. This whole story was an example, I think, of the limitations of the adversarial legal system. The two families were extraordinarily empathetic towards one another they were uh, both parents were very mindful of the fact that the other parents had lost a child in some way you know that their child had been injured and they had been separated from their parents Sasha was separated from their parents by being in the hospital for three weeks and Richard was separated from his parents by being in custody And so these were families that could have been um, really angry towards one another. They could have been very defensive, and they weren't. They were in multiple, multiple interviews. I spent 14 months um, reporting this story, and so I spent a lot of time with both families. And I never once heard anything other than kindness towards the other family. That's incredible. You talk about a really
0: emotional exchange between Sasha and Richard's parents um, at one of the court hearings. What was it like when Richard's mom approached Sasha's mom? Uh,
1: Richard's mother had approached me fairly early on because she knew that I was spending time with both families. And so she wanted to know if it would be possible to meet with Sasha's parents and apologize in person. And I had broached the topic with Debbie Crandall, who's Sasha's mother, and she had kind of recoiled um, at that point and just said, I'm not ready for that. And so I kind of left it at that. And it wasn't until a hearing in the spring at which both families were present. Debbie and Carl, Sasha's parents, hadn't come to most of the court appearances And so it was really their first time in the courtroom. And Jasmine, Richard's mother, saw them uh, sitting with me and knew who they were. And so she came up and introduced herself and just said, I'm so sorry. And these words just kind of tumbled out of, you know, I don't know what made him do that. That's not who we are. We're not hateful people. And... Then all of this was happening in the vestibule just outside the courtroom. And one by one, each member of Richard's family came forward and hugged Debbie and Carl and Sasha. Oh, Sasha was there too. Sasha was there as well. What was Sasha's reaction? Sasha's reaction was just to smile and uh, accept the hugs and... um, Sasha has this kind of um, zen quality at times. And when I asked them afterwards, you know, how was that for you to be, you know, was it strange to be hugged by all these family members of the person who attacked you? And Sasha just said, I'm always okay with hugs. It's <laughs> <laughs> <That's> so sweet. <laughs> so do you think that
0: interaction changed the way Sasha's family thought about Richard and about the incident? Did it change the way that maybe they thought Richard should be punished for the incident?
1: Yeah, I don't know if it changed the way they thought about the punishment because they had come out very early on saying that they didn't feel that Richard should be charged as an adult. Uh, Sasha's father is a kindergarten teacher. Sasha's mother works in, uh, at an independent school there are people who are in education and feel very strongly, as I do, that uh, children are not the same as adults. So they were very clear on that one. Um, but I think having the personal contact did change the way that they felt. They, they could see that uh, that Jasmine, Richard's mother, really was genuinely sorry.
0: How much time did you spend with Sasha, and what was it like discussing the actual incident? Did they have a lot of residual trauma from it?
1: Surprisingly, no. Um, Sasha's a quite a resilient person, and you know they were still in the early months of the reporting. They were still in a fair amount of pain from the burns and uh, the skin grafts. You know, had been a very uh, physically traumatic experience, and the recovery was extensive. So in that way, yes, they were traumatized, but emotionally not as much as you would think. Is that because they
0: understood sort of a bigger picture about what happened, or does that have something to do with the inner
1: zen-like quality? Yeah, I would say it has to do with Sasha's personality and that... Uh, Sasha is a very cerebral person and I think is pretty good at, at putting things in compartments. You spent uh, a
0: fair amount of time in your story discussing Sasha, the schools, the alternative schools that Sasha went went to. What do you think that had to do with uh, their upbringing, uh, I guess their state of mind, and why did you choose to include that in the story?
1: It was a very safe place for a fairly unusual kid to grow up, and so it was important for me to establish that because I think you would, most readers would assume that an unconventional kid, a kid who has decided to wear skirts, um, might have been bullied or harassed or have a history of having a trauma or unpleasant experiences, and that just wasn't true for Sasha. Sasha was actually, and still is in some way, surprisingly, kind of a true innocent, and went off into the world really believing that the world would be kind. So after this happens, how does that change its its view of the
0: world, of the outside world?
1: It's a really good question. I'm going to see Sasha later this week, and I'll be interested to talk to them about this but i'm not sure that it i'm not sure that that sasha's view has fundamentally changed um i think that sasha is more wary now but last time i talked to them about you know what were what's the residual effect of this experience they said I don't sleep on the bus anymore. (laughs) Uh, That's good. (laughs)
0: What did writing and reporting the story change for you?
1: I've always believed that empathy is one of the key virtues of a good reporter and one that's probably underrated. You know, we as journalists, we really pride ourselves on our skepticism and our cynicism. And those are important, too. But... Compassion and empathy for the people you're writing about, I think, is equally important. And what was surprising to me was how much readers responded to that. As a
0: journalist, too, you're supposed to remain
1: objective.
0: So do are there times when being objective and trying to
1: be empathetic, are those at odds with each other? They shouldn't be, no. Uh, you have to be absolutely committed to the truth and unafraid of the truth, even if it looks bad for somebody that you like. But at the same time, you have to be willing to step into their experience and to try and understand their story as they would tell it. And so, you know, a lot of the the article was about stepping outside of the binary, right? That's Sasha's mission is to step outside of this binary. view of the world in which there are only two genders and you have to choose. And I felt like a lot of the article was about that as a journalist as well, that it's not a question of being objective versus being empathic, uh, objective versus compassionate. It's can you be both? Well, thank you so much, Dashka. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. The Upshot is
0: produced by Justin Richmond. Thank you again to Dashka Slater and to the New York Times Magazine. You can subscribe to The Upshot on iTunes and Stitcher. And to read all of the stories that are discussed on The Upshot, check out our website, theupshotpod.com. And tweet us at theupshotpod. Until next time, I'm Leah Rose, and this is The Upshot.